Okay, your biological age is shorter. 43. It's 43. 43. I'm 63, but I'm biologically 43. So it's 20 years less. Yeah, I'm probably I'm probably the age uh, biologically that I was chronologically when I met you. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today I'm joined by an old friend and mentor, Dr. Mark Hyman. Mark was on this podcast about three years ago, and I'm excited to have him on again to talk about his new book, Young Forever. Mark is a functional medicine doctor, a prolific writer on health and wellness, a vocal advocate for changes in our food system, including founding Food Fix Campaign, which is an organization working hard in Washington, D.C. to help shape policies that are pro-wellness for ourselves and our environment. Mark, so great to see you. I'm so glad to talk to you. It's been too long. Too long. So good to be back. Yeah. So you were hiding somewhere writing a book called Young Forever. It went really well, I think. I read it over the past couple of weeks. It's chock full of stuff that some of it I knew from you, some of it I didn't know. So I'm so excited to talk to you about it. Why'd you write it? Uh, well, uh, self-interest mostly. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> I'm getting older, and I, I, you know, I've always been paying attention to the science of longevity, but it's exploded over the last couple of decades, and there's so much more we knew than we thought was possible about how we age and what we can do about it, and you know what we're learning about the mechanisms underlying all disease. So I really wanted to create a roadmap for people. There's a lot of books on longevity out there, but they're sort of like a little bit academic, or they're a little high level, or they're written by scientists, not doctors. Well, I'm also a scientist, but like a doctor who actually yeah. treats people and sees what to do in real life. So that was really my motivation to bring a functional medicine lens to the longevity science, which is really in itself kind of a mirror of functional medicine without realizing that that's what it is, because it talks about a lot of the same concepts that are underlying all disease, like you know mitochondrial issues, nutritional issues, you know inflammation, gut stuff. So a, a lot of that's sort of mirrored in the science of longevity research. So. Can you start just by talking about why we age and and how we age? Well, you know, uh, Jill, we really look around us in our society and we see what I think is abnormal aging. uh, And we come to expect that as normal. We become frail, diseased, disabled, a little decrepit, can't do the things we love to do. And that seems like we, we normally will just see a decline in our ability to do things. And I think that's not normal. That's a sign of abnormal aging. And so it's actually a disease. And the World Health Organization has now sort of made a code for that in their ICD-10 classification as a disease. In America, it's not quite caught on. But, it's, but if, if it's a disease, that means it's treatable. So you know, we can't reverse our chronological age, which is how many years are on the planet. But we can reverse our biological age, which is what's going on on the inside. And this has been demonstrated in study after study that using different interventions and lifestyle and various plant compounds, even some medication, that we can turn back our biological clock by affecting these key processes that are underlying all disease. If we cured heart disease and cancer from the face of the planet, those are the number one and two killers, we would only extend life by five to seven years. If we dealt with the root causes of aging, what they call the hallmarks of aging, we could extend life by 30 or 40 years. Your risk of, for example, lung cancer or any kind of cancer, if you're a smoker, if you're smoking two packs a day at 35, is far less than a 75-year-old who doesn't smoke or has never smoked. Because age itself creates all these problems that we can actually begin to understand and treat. And so that's the kind of cool part. We can treat our biology by understanding the basic laws of how we operate. I call them the laws of biology. And so 
when you understand those laws, you can actually apply the science to reverse biological aging and do this by activating our body's own innate longevity systems. We have these innate ancient built-in survival mechanisms, longevity switches that we can learn how to turn on. Most of the things we do in our life, turn them off. Why do we have those longevity switches? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. So, so basically, we're designed to survive, right? That's how our bodies are designed. So when there's too little food or the temperatures are too extreme or when we have different kinds of insults, our bodies are designed to kind of respond to that. So when you fast, for example, which is a stress, it activates your body's healing and repair regeneration system. So it turns on stem cells. It reduces inflammation, it reduces oxidative stress, it increases insulin sensitivity, it helps you have better cognitive function, improves muscle function, and basically turns all the longevity problems backwards. And it does so by activating these ancient pathways. For example, autophagy, which is this, this really key concept in longevity science where your body has to have cleanup periods. For example, if you were in your kitchen just making dinner 24-7 and never cleaning up, it's going to be a mess. Right. Uh, so you need to make dinner and make food, but you also need to clean up. <laughs> and I think that's how the body works too. We need to build stuff and make proteins and have our kind of system in a build mode, but we also need a repair mode. So this is where sleep comes in and maybe some sort of fasting, like a certain number of hours of not eating so that your body has time to activate that? Yeah. So everything that we know, for example, like time-restricted eating or fasting, exercise, dealing with sleep, all these things activate these ancient pathways. So they're kind of cool that they're there. We've just been running roughshod over them and causing them to cause us to become sicker. And, and the problem is our health span is much shorter than our lifespan. Our lifespan is how many years we're alive. Our health span is how many years we're healthy. And usually the last 20% of people's life is in poor health. What if you could live a life where your health span and lifespan were essentially the same? Or maybe you had a couple of days at the end that weren't so good, but then that was it. Or maybe even not. Maybe you go to dinner with your family at 100 years old, a nice Thanksgiving, you have a big meal, and you go to sleep, and you could just like go to sleep, and that would be it. And I, you know, I was in, in places like Sardinia where people live to be very old. They have the longest of males in, in the world. The shepherds there hike five miles up and down rocky terrain every day. This guy Pietro is 95 years old and bolt upright, clear eyes, you know, booming Still voice. Still hiking? Uh, yes, just kind of retired from being a shepherd, I think, a year ago, and he was like 94. You know, he was hanging out with his community, having a great time. And I'm like, wow, this is a different view of a 95-year-old than I've yeah, seen, right? Which, for you know, sure. People who are kind of like moving slow and not feeling so good and having this ache and pain. You know, he was on no medication and he just, he was just healthy. So you, you talked about I, on another podcast that I was listening to that your biological age is shorter. 43. It's 43. 43. I'm 63, but I'm biologically 43. So it's 20 years less. Yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably the age of biologically that I was chronologically when I met you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you seem the same. So that's proof. <laughs> How did you find that out? Well, there's an incredible new technology, which we didn't have before. So the question is, how do we know how we're aging? How do we measure any intervention? How do we know what works, what doesn't work? Yeah. How do we test hypotheses of how to treat aging as a disease? Well, the scientist, Stephen Horvath, came up with a, a model to measure biological age using epigenetics, measuring our epigenetic clock, our biological clock. The epigenome is essentially the regulator of our genes. Our genes are 
fixed. There's 20,000 genes. We can't change them. We're born with them. I mean, maybe gene editing, you know, allows us to do some genetic editing, but that's basically, you can't do that. Think of it like your piano. You've got 88 keys on the piano, but it can play a lot of different kinds of music, right? Rock, reggae, jazz, classical, whatever. And the regulator, the piano player, if you will, is your epigenome, which means epi means above. It sits above your genome. And it basically, essentially, is like little chemical tags marking which genes should be read or not read, which genes should be silenced or activated. And that controls everything in our body. And so we can actually change the epigenetic clock and turn it backwards. What causes it to go fast forward? Mm-hmm. Poor diet, sugar, too much starch, processed foods, lack of healthy foods, you know, phytochemicals and right protein, all the things we need. Lack of exercise makes it go faster. Lack of sleep, too much stress, environmental toxins, changes in our microbiome. We call that the exposome. All the things that our genes are exposed to over the course of our life, whether it's what we're eating or what we're thinking, it's all speaking to our genes. And so the epigenetic clock is a way now to measure any kind of intervention through what we call DNA methylation testing. So methylation is just the way in which your gene, your epigenome is controlled through these chemical processes where you basically put a methyl group, which is a carbon and three hydrogens, on the gene to say, okay, this is like a bookmark in a page. Read this page. Don't read that page. And that is pretty amazing. And that can yeah, be influenced by our diet, like B vitamins, many things. So I think, you know, when we look at the biological age interventions, uh, we now are seeing study after study showing through various technologies and whether it's a supplements like quercetin or whether it's fasting or whether it's vitamin D or a whole bunch of different things have been tried to show that we can literally change the epigenetic clock. So I'm chronologically 63, but I'm biologically 43. I'm going to try to get to 25. We'll see how it goes. I love it. Wait, so where do you get that test done? So now there's a lot of labs doing this. There's a lot of companies coming on the market. I would say I've I've done, you know, testing of all of them almost. There's a few new ones I've got to check out, but I basically did everything at the same time. So I did the same day I did all of them just to Ah. see like where it was all kind of the place. But there's a few that are more validated. Uh, True Diagnostic is one that I I use clinically. I use it with my patients. It's available online. Uh, You can actually order it yourself. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. All right. I want to talk about the, I read your book, as I said. And I went, I did all the tests, all your so tests. So you did a 40 degree cold bath this morning? <laughs> no, I, mean, I can't. You know what? All right. How long do you need to do the cold bath, floor? Because I can do it for about 15 seconds. Yeah. Well, I, I actually just did a podcast with a woman who's a PhD researcher from Denmark who, whose specialty is understanding the impact of cold immersion therapy on our biology from a scientific perspective and it's fascinating like is it most important kind of important it's very important it's very it's very important really hot and cold are like if you do a sauna you can get that hot down yeah (laughs) you can you can basically increase your lifespan and reduces mortality by over 40 percent if you do four saunas a week for 30 minutes which is impressive she basically said to do like you know 10 15 minutes of sauna with maybe a minute of cold. Now, if you do the sauna first, you're going to be hot. It's easier to get in the cold. The first second, the first 15 seconds is the hardest. You're like, ah, this is intense. 
And then you kind of get used to it. And you start, if you use your breath and use your breath to regulate your nervous system, you'll get an incredible set of things that start to happen. Your brown fat activates, which is your metabolism. It increases, it improves insulin sensitivity, helps you lose weight, but also increases your dopamine to help you stay focused, increases clarity and mood and energy. I mean, why is everybody on Ritalin or cocaine or eating sugar? It's all to increase dopamine. Well, you can do that. The cold plunge, you know, a cookie or a cold plunge, and a cold plunge a lot better for you. <laughs> yeah, and it probably lasts a lot longer. Yeah, it's pretty, it's quite amazing, actually. I was uh, swimming in here in, in Austin this week, and the water's like, you know, 60 degrees or something, which isn't extremely cold. But I went for a bit of a swim in there, and, you know, by the end, you know, you just you, you feel that cold effect. Yeah, okay. So I need to do it more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on it. Okay, these checklists, though, that are in your book... I feel like I did fairly well on these. You're an overachiever, Jill. That's I am. I know. I was trying to get zero on all of them. I couldn't. But here's why I couldn't, Mark, because you have to put a score down if your family history, you have a family history of neurological diseases, heart diseases, cancer, I think also like depression, bipolar disorder, Mm. mental health disorders. Just tell me why those things are so important to know. And does it kind of just feed into, I'm imagining that if you follow sort of this routine, you can prevent a lot of that. Right. I mean, the idea that, you know, our genetics are not our destiny, but our genes do influence our health. We can change our gene expression, as I was mentioning, through this epigenetic process and through other mechanisms, we can change our gene expression. The example I always give is, you know, the Pima Indians in Arizona were thin and healthy and fit. There was no obesity, no diabetes. They had very long lives, and they were really incredibly healthy at 150 years ago, right? We show up, we feed them what I call the white menace, which is white flour, white sugar, and and white fat, otherwise known as Crisco or trans fat. And within a very short time, they become the most obese population here in the world, uh, second in the whole world to the Samoans. 80% 80% of diabetes by the time they're 30, their life expectancy is 46, and many little kids have type 2 diabetes. So is it their genes or their environment? Their cousins in Mexico who live their traditional lifestyle, healthy, not fat, not overweight. Mm. So yes, you have predispositions, but you're not predestined. And so if you understand your predispositions, like for example, if you have a, a risk of Alzheimer's, there's a gene we can measure that looks at your risk of getting Alzheimer's, which if you have a double copy of this gene, like one from your mom, one from your dad, your risk of getting Alzheimer's is like 75%, which is high. But I've seen people, I had a patient once when I was at Canyon Ranch, and she was like in her 90s, and she was a dentist, and she was had been a, quote, health nut her whole life, exercise, ate healthy, took her vitamins, like didn't drink, didn't smoke, and it was just kind of, she was a, a dentist and was mentally extremely sharp and still practicing dentistry in her 90s. Now, I'm not sure I don't want to go to a 90-year-old dentist, but yeah, right. <laughs> she but was still, she was amazing. Aww. And so she had this, you know, super high-risk gene, but she didn't end up with a condition because her health was optimized over her whole life. And that's the whole point here, is that we can we can really prevent. I mean, I, for example, have a really strong history of family heart disease in my family. Like my grandfather had it, all of his brothers and sisters had bypass in their 50s. You know, they were all having issues. So I, I, you know, I'm very focused on my own cardiovascular risk and checking it and modifying what I do. And, you know, I don't, I don't expect to have a heart attack or a stroke. So because of what you do. Yeah, exactly. But you're talking about, and I think it's really important that, you know, the longer you practice these things, the better effect 
you have, right, on your health yeah. overall. I'm more likely to die like in a bike accident when I'm 105 or maybe skiing down the hill when I'm 100 and falling. Right, with a biological age of 46. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are you following the recommendations that are coming out of the American Academy for Pediatrics? Because as I was reading- Oh my of, God, chill. Right? I know, oh but I'm reading God. your notes about food and how important food is. And I know how important you you think food is and that, that we should all think food is. And then we've got the American Academy of Pediatrics coming out and saying, okay, if a child is diagnosed with obesity, we should first recommend this whole child intensive programming and coaching for the whole family on food and exercise and lifestyle changes. But if that doesn't work, and it's really hard to do, which is like in their statement, then we recommend drugs and surgery by the time they're like 16 years old. Have we just given up on kids? Like what's going on there? This is just such a classic example of how backwards medicine is. And I think that the American pediatrics came out with these guidelines around how we treat childhood obesity. And they said, this is a big problem. Agreed. We should be aggressive in treating it. Agreed. Then the question is how? And what the recommendations are is to use medication or surgery. And I'm, you're talking about gastric bypass on kids. And these, are, these, these have lifelong consequences. These kids are now actually, some of these kids are getting fatty liver. They're getting liver transplants as teenagers. I mean, this is really quite concerning. And I think to me, and I wrote a lot about this in Food Fix, a lot of our professional associations are co-opted by the food industry and drug industry. And they're funded in part or, you know, in large part by funds from these groups. And so for them to go, let's take drugs instead of going, wait, it's the food system. Right. <laughs> you know, like it's maybe we should be, it's like, and then one of the one of the shocking things was this Harvard researcher saying obesity is genetic, and I'm like, well, explain to me how. And, and in the same basic sense, they said, well, obesity has increased, you know, fourfold in children in the last, you know, thirty years. Well, how is that genetic? <laughs> right, right. You know, it's like it just right. doesn't. It didn't even make sense from a no. just a simple, logical, even non scientific perspective. If anybody's listening, and I thought. Yes, there are genetic predispositions, and there are certain groups and populations that are more likely to be overweight if the conditions are bad. Yes. But that doesn't mean that they can't be healthy. Like the Pima Indians, their genes were not able to handle the flood of flour and sugar that we consume. Now, some maybe Northern Europeans might be able to handle a little bit better. So that doesn't mean that it's good for them. It just means they're not going to blow up to be 400 pounds and get diabetes at 20 years old. They might get it at 50 years old, you know? Right. Yeah, this is just what struck me as I as I read through your book is, you know, I went and looked up what, you know, we're spending on healthcare today as a this is just public money, right? We spend four point three trillion dollars in twenty twenty one. Right. So almost thirteen thousand dollars per person in this country is spent on healthcare. So about twenty percent of the gross domestic product. And I'm just thinking to myself, okay, what if we did a restart we and we provided much better food to people everywhere across the country. What would we reduce that by, do you think? Let's say if people just followed what is recommended in here by 60 or 70%. The problem is, you know, you take that 13,000 number, yeah. it's actually averaged out, right? right. So right. you're not using that. I'm not using that. Right. Which means that some people are using a lot more. If you look at, you know, 50% of costs of Medicare, which is <laughs> like a trillion dollar budget, yeah. Yeah. is on 5% of the population. Well, right, because it's all the last 20 years. 
right? Like we can get ourselves, we we can fight against the machine until a certain extent. And then we have to like go in there with lots of drugs, lots of surgery, lots of time in hospital, all of those other things. Right. So if you're just looking and targeting like the, the, the high risk people, the savings are insane. Like for example, there was a study done by Geisinger where they took food insecure type 2 diabetics. They basically decided to give them food because <laughs> Geisinger <laughs> is a internal sort of contained system. It's an HMO basically where the payer and the provider are the same. So there's no conflict. Like they, they're, they're incentivized to actually reduce costs and improve health outcomes, which most of healthcare is not, right? Yeah. And they found that by giving them food, basically it was 2,400 bucks for the year. It was 65 cents a meal they were able to do it for and some education. And they provided meals for the family too. It was like basically five days a week. And they were able to reduce adverse health outcomes, hospitalizations, deaths, heart attacks by 40%, which is incredible. And they were able to lower hemoglobin A1C in these food insecure diabetics more than any drug on the market. And they were able to save $192,000 per patient. So the average patient was costing $240,000 and went down to $48,000. That's insane, right? Think about the savings there. So in answer to your question, we could save trillions of dollars. Because we right now, we spend more than double on any other healthcare system on healthcare. If we cut in half and got, you know, focused on the right things, we could use that money for all sorts of stuff like free education and, you know, healthcare for more people and all kinds of stuff that we, we can't do it now. Right, exactly. Well, and, you know, instead of healthcare, just, you know, wellness, like keeping people well. So I want to do a deep dive into some of the new, the newer innovations that are in your book and, and really understand what they are. So I want to start with stem cells, because when my two kids were born, we were encouraged to collect their stem cells. And so Great they're stored idea. somewhere in I love a that. stem cell bank. Right. A smart, I had a very smart OBGYN, I guess. So why why am I keeping them and what's going on? And I know of a friend who's in Mexico having stem cell treatments because she has autoimmune disease and she's run into, you know, every time she goes, she sends back a couple more pictures with like a football player who's got a broken, you know, this and a dancer. So what's going on? Why isn't it happening here? And why do stem cells work so well? Yeah, well, this is sort of speaks to the body's own intelligent healing system, right? So when you cut your skin... You don't go, hey, skin, I want you to repair and heal. And like, can you please fix that cut by Thursday? And, you know, I mean, your body just knows what to do because it's got this built-in healing system. It's a whole regenerative system. And stem cells are one part of it. There are many parts of it. And so there's a whole field of looking at how do we use the body's own system rather than all these drugs with side effects, but things that our body naturally uses but amplify them. So stem cells are your body's own repair and healing and rejuvenation system. And they're from your bone marrow, they're from your fat tissue, they're in, you know, all over your body. And they get recruited when your body needs to heal. Now, as we get older, we get what we call stem cell exhaustion. It's one of the hallmarks of aging. They don't work as well, they're a little tired, injured by the same things. But there are all these therapies that can help activate our body's own stem cells, for example, like hyperbaric oxygen, ozone, exosomes and other things that can help the body activate that. And then there's the use of stem cells, which can be used in orthopedic challenges, in systemic illnesses like autoimmune disease, kidney issues, lots of things. I just read a study on heart failure. They actually injected stem cells into people with heart failure, and it actually reversed their heart failure, 
which there's really no treatment that can do that now. There's no drug that can do that. And the reason is the stem cells get injected into a particular place and the stem cells then are activated to regenerate as that function, right? They Yes. I mean, they can, they can actually, you know, release all these healing and repair factors, right? So they can become new cells, but they can also activate all the healing system. So there's a really an incredible science around this. This country doesn't allow you to create expanded stem cells, meaning you have to use your own stem cells. You can't grow them in a lab. If you're 70, you got 70-year-old stem cells, right? You can't grow them and make them more, which sometimes you need more than just what you can get from your own tissue. So if people go out of the country, like Costa Rica or Panama or the Cayman Islands or other places where they're actually doing this and actually allowing you legally to expand your stem cell count and use your own stem cells. But there's also umbilical stem cells. There's also placental stem cells. There's also, which are kind of non-antigenic. And there are also um, exosomes, which are the derivatives of stem cells. So inside stem cells are these little packets of healing factors, and those are called exosomes. And what do they do? They actually contain all these healing factors, like things that tell your body repair and renew and grow and fix everything. So you can actually grow those in a lab and you can extract them, for example, from placental stem cells in huge quantities and then inject them into the body. I've had them used many times. I had COVID. I just had the worst cognitive problems after brain fog and depression, which I never have. And I literally got some exosomes and injected them into my vein and I was better the next day. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. Oh, and you did the treatment yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I'm a doctor. You're a doctor. I'm like a junkie, right? I can shoot myself up. So, <laughs> how do you get exosomes? So, so are these are there clinics that you can go to if you yes, want to? Yes, in America, explore? it's much easier to get exosomes. You can okay. get ex- expanded exosomes, and you can do it in my clinic in the Ultra Wellness Center. You can do it in at other places around the country, and we get them from very, you know, reputable labs and sources that are you know, all tested and purified, and make sure there's no contaminants or infections or anything. So it's really it's very safe to do, and I found it incredibly effective for both orthopedic issues as well as systemic issues. Hmm. And what about peptides? And I know they're two different things, but talk a little bit about peptides and ozone therapy. Yeah, so, so you know, in sort of these innovations around like stem cells, exosomes, peptides are, again, another part of the body's own communication, healing, and repair system. And peptides are small little tiny proteins that are made up of amino acids, but they're, they're kind of mini proteins. Insulin's a peptide, Ozempic is a peptide, okay? There are over 70 peptides approved by the FDA. There's thousands and thousands of peptides made by the body that do everything from, you know, increase growth hormone, increase neurotransmitters, increase testosterone, help with repair of tissues. For example, if I have injury, I'll often just inject my shoulder with some BP-157 that helps to repair. So it brings like the repair system in. And I find these extremely helpful for all sorts of things. They're great for libido, sexual function. So pretty much everything your body needs to do is regulated by peptides. And these peptides you can take as treatments that are given that are working with your body in the way the body was designed rather than a drug, which is blocking or interfering with some pathway. Right. Those are available already in the U.S. Yeah, they're available. There's a lot of sort of mucky waters around regulation in this country, but they're definitely being used. They're available. They're still kind of navigating how they're going to be regulated, but they are available. And then and many practitioners are using them. Patients can get them. And what about ozone? Yeah, ozone's another therapy. It's been around for a long time. Nikolai Tesla invented the ozone generator back in his day. 
not Elon Musk of Tesla, but the guy who, Mr. Tesla himself, mm-hmm, himself <laughs> who was yeah. an inventor. And essentially it's O3, it's oxygen with an extra oxygen molecule, right? So it's three oxygens instead of two, which is what O2 is, is oxygen. And it's a very volatile molecule. It's an oxidative therapy and it's incredible germicide, but also can be given intravenously. And when it does, it creates a little stress response. We call hormesis. So hormesis is what we're talking about before, cold therapy, fasting, exercise, all activate these ancient pathways of healing. And so ozone will be a little bit of a stress to the system and then the body will rebound by making it stronger. It's like when you exercise, you tear your muscles, but they rebound by becoming stronger. You injure them, right? So this is kind of like a tiny little injury that then creates your immune system to work better, that it actually activates your stem cells to be produced. It improves your mitochondria, that reduces clotting, that reduces inflammation, increases your antioxidant systems. So I find it incredibly therapeutic, and I think it's a really significant potential longevity therapy, because one of the things that happens as you get older is inflammation. And so a lot of things that are going on with aging are modulated by ozone therapy. That's so interesting. So, And then underlying your recommendations, so you kind of, you went back to food and exercise. You talked quite a bit in your book about mental health disorders and stress and how debilitating those can be and, and how to seek help for them. Yeah. You know, looking back on your career, have mental health disorders become more and more? Oh my God, Joe. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, we've just such, seen such a mental health crisis here and around the world, you know, increases in teen suicides and increases in diseases of despair, you know, addiction and depression and suicide are just going like this. Know, and off the charts, yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it, but I, I think a lot of it has to do with our environment and our food. And we know that food plays a huge role in our mood and cognitive function, uh, There's now medical schools that have departments like nutritional psychiatry or metabolic psychiatry uh, at Stanford and Harvard where they're looking at the role of of how these play a big factor. Chris Palmer at at Harvard is a psychiatrist who I had on the podcast talked about, you know, the mitochondrial dysfunction that happens in depression and, and mental health issues. And he cured schizophrenia, for example, using a ketogenic diet. You know, like, how do you do that? Huh. Well, it's wow. the brain is inflamed. The brain is inflamed. The brain is not functioning well. You take out a lot of things that are causing a problem. And gluten, for example, is a factor often in schizophrenia. So I, th- I think, you know, there's mental illness that has to do with our physiological state. And there's also mental illness that has to do with our psychological and spiritual, emotional state. You can be depressed because you lost your mother or sibling. I had a patient like this who had heart failure because he lost his wife of 40 years to cancer. And he, he just was otherwise healthy and boom, went into heart failure. And we did a bunch of energy healing. He like actually got through it. So I think that our thoughts, our feelings, our mood, our mindset play a huge role. And one of the things that, you know, is sort of, the, you know, think about, like I said, if we cured cancer and heart disease, we could extend life by seven years. If you have meaning and purpose in your life, you extend your life by seven years. But when do you think this advice because you know, people can read your book and follow it, but your your book then probably doesn't reach, you know, some of the most needy folks in the, and maybe it does, maybe yeah. there are ways for yeah, it to yeah. reach it. But how, yeah. like, how do we, how and when does this actually filter into advice that's given commonly by doctors? You know, because I, it just, it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, this is what I'm working on. As you know, Joe, I've got a nonprofit called the Food Fix Campaign, which is about, educating lawmakers in Washington about the policy changes needed to fix our food system and deal with the causes of this. We are advocating, for example, for medical education on nutrition. (laughs) 
it's not it's not something that's it's actually included in most medical school curriculums. Yeah, it's crazy. And if it is, it's really like my daughter had nutrition. She's in medical school, and it was like, okay, well, here's amino acids, and here's fatty acids. I'm like, well, that doesn't teach you what to do to treat illness, right? And so uh, there's 17 billion dollars, for example, in graduate medical education funding from the government, from the federal government. Mm-hmm to medical schools and residencies, and there's no criteria for how those funds are used, for example. Or we could create licensing exams that include nutrition that would change medical school curricula because, sadly, the curricula is designed for the test. They want the kids to pass the test, you know, and become a doctor. Well, that test had nutrition questions. We have to change it. I think there are really, you know, big changes that need to happen on the policy front to change our food system. So food labeling, I just was on the phone with one of the biggest food companies in the world, and and they're very interested in helping to sort of move things along and improve things. So like I see change start to happening. Nestle, for example, committed 70% of its agriculture supply chain to regenerative agriculture. They just announced two months ago they're eliminating all food marketing to children under 16. There's things that are starting to happen. It's huge. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. You know, uh, Disney did that. They got rid of all the Disney characters and all the fast food restaurants. And, you know, they lost 200 million in ad revenue, but they actually had actually better overall brand and better overall profit over a while because they they did the right thing. I think there are there are things that are starting to happen that I'm really optimistic about. I'm working with the chairman of the health subcommittee of the Ways and Means Committee, which is the committee in Congress that drives a lot of financial yeah. dis, uh, dispersions. And he's in charge of Medicare, for example, which is a trillion-dollar budget. He's like, I just have a trillion-dollar budget. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I was like, you can imagine that amount of money. And, you know, they're actually... Seriously thinking about how do we move the needle in the right direction. So I'm uh, cautiously optimistic, but I think things are changing. The winds are changing. There's increasing rising awareness. You know, I'm seeing, uh, you know, big movements to, to do the right thing, but it's, it's not as fast as we need it to happen. And I think some things are just ridiculously absent from the dialogue. For example, how food plays a role in chronic illness is something most people aren't even talking about. And then particularly in covid an acute illness, food played a huge role. I mean, there was data that showed that 63% of hospitalizations and deaths could have been prevented by better diet. And we were 4% of the world's population, but 16% of the cases and deaths. Why? Not because we don't have a good healthcare system, we have the best, but because we're so sick and overweight and our health is so bad that when the virus hits us, we can't handle it. Mark, though, when you talk to people who can do something about this from a policy perspective, do they ever think about the fact that so much food is engineered to be addictive? Like, is there a way to address this in the same way we addressed, you know, cigarettes and lung cancer, where, you know, there's an addiction at play here, this combination of salt and sugar and chemicals is so finely tuned to make us want to eat more and more and more of it. Isn't there something there where the government could feel that it's just to regulate it in some way? Well, there is, a, there is a 1958 law in the books that basically prohibits the selling or use of foods that are harmful to health. Mm. And, and a lot of this was you know, used around you know, food safety stuff. And there's 1,400 deaths a year from food safety problems. There's 1,400 deaths a day plus more from chronic disease. But I think there's you know, interest in sort of moving things forward. And if you know, we could actually, there's, there's actually a precedent for, for addressing this, like trans fat, for example, is a food that's linked to chronic disease. And it was ruled not safe to eat by the FDA. Now, 
still the way the food system works is there's a lot of companies that still have trans fats in the products. I, I don't understand how this works. I think there's some loophole or something, but like there's no regulators monitoring or something because you go to the grocery store and you just look at the labels and there's still a lot of products that have trans fats in them. And this was eight years ago that the government said it's not safe to eat. <laughs> it's over. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. See, I'm such a rule follower. When I heard that, I was like, okay, good. Everyone's got it off the books now. No, that makes sense. No. Let's talk a little bit about exercise. What I was thinking about, you talk about weight training is important as well as cardiovascular training. Um, but it made me wonder, you know, Tai Chi and Qigong or yoga versus Ironman training, like what is it? It just depends on who you well, are and what drives you or what's, <laughs> what's the scoop I think, there? Well, first of all, like I, I think... I think doing it, being an Ironman is like an extreme athlete and probably has harmful effects on the body at that extreme level. I think, you know, the dose and the amount of exercise required to have significant benefits is so low. Like going from zero doing nothing to walking 20 to 30 minutes a day, you see a huge increase in health and a decrease in mortality. Obviously, if you do more, you see more benefit. But there's a level at which it plateaus. If you go from like, you know, 30 minutes of, of vigorous activity, you know, three or four times a week, you get a dramatically higher level. And then it, to, from there to a marathon runner, it's kind of not, right? Yeah. So there's only Well, I thought it was interesting, Mark, that I took my first Qigong Tai Chi class mm-hmm. about a week ago. I had mm. no idea that, you know, it's really, it's a, it's a martial art that's focused on strength building, right? But you just do it at this terribly so, slow pace because you're trying to perfect all, all the movement, but it actually does build muscle. And so is that sort of, is that sort of exercise has the same effect as like going for a 45 minute run? No, they're all different. So there's like, there's, there's, you know, cardiovascular conditioning. That's where you get your heart rate up and push yourself a little bit. There's resistance training. There's flexibility. You know, Qigong and Tai Chi are kind of different. They're, and they're kind of like a cross between meditation and exercise. And breathing. so they have a lot of breathing and mm-hmm. slow movement. And they do build strength for sure. But I think if you really look at what you need as you get older, you need muscle. And muscle is the currency of longevity. As you age, you lose muscle. And the key to staying functional as you get older is to have the muscle do what you want to do. You know, my dad was like in his mid-80s and couldn't get up out of a chair anymore and couldn't do a lot of things. So I'm like, Dad, you're losing muscle. You need a trainer. And he got a trainer, and I paid for his trainer. And he ended up getting so much stronger. And by he was 89 years old. We were playing tennis together, singles tennis. I mean, I had to hit the ball to him, but he was like... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. But he, he, he was pretty good. And so I think we have the capacity to understand through the science of muscle and protein how to maintain, build, and keep the muscle as we get older. Because muscle is where all your metabolism happens. It regulates your immune system. It regulates your brain chemistry, your hormones. It's so important at so many levels. It's not just like a bunch of things moving around your bones. It's actually a very incredibly powerful metabolic organ. If you lose muscle, you lose mitochondria, you lose fitness, you lose function, you get more inflammation, you lower growth hormone, you increase cortisol, you increase your risk of diabetes, your cholesterol gets worse, your your mood gets worse. I mean, it's just the whole thing is just all so tied into the amount and the health of your muscle. I started doing resistance band training. You can do body weight exercises. You can do weights. You can. Do, there's a lot of things out there to do stuff. You know, it doesn't have to cost a lot or be expensive. I use, you know, bands. I carry them with me everywhere, and they're easy to use. And 
I have, you know, like dozens of different routines I can do. And I, it just, it's incredible how my body's changed, even just in a few years of doing this. Within six months, my body was completely different. That's amazing. I'm starting and starting at like after 60 years old. So yeah. I think it's, it's super important to do this. So it's a part of the reason you're actually 46. Yeah, maybe uh, 43. Hey. 43. Oh my God, I just <laughs> aged you by three years right on this podcast. <laughs> All right, wait. No, we. I have to let you go soon. So, can you just can you talk to us about just how there's only so many hours in a day, and we know how important sleep is. So, how do you approach your day? Like, what's Mark Hyman's day? Okay, well, I, I can tell you what I did today. So, I woke up about six thirty. I sat and I just wrote. I like to kind of, I you know, just kind of have a. I actually took a cold shower. Actually, I did. I took a cold <laughs> shower for two minutes. Uh, so nice. And then I wrote to just process my inner experience, my life, and what I'm learning, whatever. And it just kind of grounds me for the day. Sometimes I'll meditate too. And then I did a 30-minute, very intense resistance band training where I'm staying. They have an infrared sauna. I put the sauna on before. I went in the sauna and did a 20-minute, very hot sauna, took a cold shower, and then made my healthy aging shake, which includes my regeneratively raised goat whey. I like goat whey because it's less inflammatory. I tolerate it better. And whey is really powerful for building muscle, building glutathione. It's like a really important thing as we age. Hmm. It's high-quality protein. And then I add in creatine to help build muscle. I add in adaptogenic mushrooms. I add in something called MitoPure, which is essentially a something from pomegranate that helps build muscle and clean up old mitochondria. I'll put in some, you know, fresh berry from frozen berries or fresh berries, a little macadamia milk, and I blend it up. And I've got an incredible healthy longevity shake. And that, you know, took me about an hour and a half to do all that. And and then I start my day. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so great. And then you eat well. Yeah. And you and you stay unstressed. Well I try. Amazing. All right. Well, Mark, thank you for doing this. Thank you for your new book. I found it very exciting. I think people will love it. It's called Young Forever. And I hope you have a great day, Mark. Thanks very much for doing this. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.